Hi there. Just a very quick thank you to everyone who signed up to Patreon following my appeal last week. I've been greatly heartened by the kind messages and how much the podcast means to you. If you enjoy the content, then please sign up for only $4, £3 or €3 Euros a month at coldwarconversations.com slash donate. You can cancel at any time. Now, on with today's episode. You know, it's it's so important to remember that the war for the Soviets, but also actually for the Americans at the time at Dayton, is still a very real and vivid experience. This is Cold War Conversations. There can be no whitewash at the White House. Do grant a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. Welcome to Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Today we speak with Richard Crowder, the author of Détente, The Chance to End the Cold War. Between 1968 and 1975, there was a subtle thawing of relations between East and West, for which Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev coined the name Détente. The leaders of the United States and the Soviet Union, Richard Nixon and Leonid Brezhnev, hoped to forge a new relationship between East and West. We talk about some of the key moments, such as where Henry Kissinger, Nixon's Secretary of State, agreed the end to the war in Vietnam. The 1973 Arab-Israeli War, where the world stood on the brink of armed conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States. And the Helsinki Accords, where the agreement to uphold human rights unleashed dissident movements amongst the communist parties of Eastern Europe. Now, I really need your help to allow me the time to continue producing and preserving these Cold War stories. A monthly donation to help keep us on the air is only about $3, £3 or €3 per month. Larger amounts are always welcome. Plus, you can get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a gift for being a monthly financial supporter and you bask in the warm glow of knowing you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. So, back to today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Richard Crowder to our Cold War Conversation. I've been writing for a few years now in a, a private capacity, but just so your listeners are aware, obviously, because I'm a working civil servant, I, I can't comment on current events, um, but very happy to talk about the book and, uh, and the detente period. Well, no, that's fine. So we're going to go back to the late 60s and 1970s for this conversation. And Richard, I think a good point to start on is... Just to give some context here, can you just give us a view of what the world looked like in the late 60s, 1970s? Yes, of course. I mean, I, I think uh, people who, who follow your podcast will be very familiar with the, the context of the Cold War, but it's worth remembering the Cold War came about in the um, in the late 1940s. In fact, I wrote about that in, in my first book, uh, Aftermath. And through the 1950s and early 60s, a period of rising confrontation between the superpowers, um, build-up of, of nuclear weapons, of course, and both superpowers looking for uh, domination in, in different spheres. And, of course, um, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis in the early 1960s was a, a particular moment of tension when the world came very close to an actual nuclear confrontation. By the late 1960s, the the picture begins to shift a bit, and that's why I was interested to uh, to look at this period. In terms of, of military capability on the two sides, the Soviets had invested very heavily in um, uh, various kinds of nuclear armaments and were approaching parity with the United States. That was very important in strategic terms because it meant that it became increasingly difficult for either side to 
contemplate the possibility of winning a nuclear exchange because both superpowers had a so-called second strike capability uh, and and the ability to retaliate in the event of a, a nuclear conflict. But with that too, there was a sense that the sort of the old politics had not succeeded. And so uh, you had the election of Richard Nixon in the autumn of 1968. Uh, Brezhnev um, had been in power for a few years by that point. He'd, he'd taken over in effectively in a coup against Khrushchev in, in 64. But both men feeling that they wanted to explore a different way of carrying forward the relationship between the two countries. And the, the jargon of the time was talking about a path to peaceful coexistence, um, if uh, if such a thing was possible. Uh, the other thing, of course, to mention about the, the context of this era is it was an incredible time of social and economic change across the world. You had a wave of protests, not just in the United States, of course, against the Vietnam War um, and race riots, assassination of Martin Luther King and Bob Kennedy and so on. But also in, in France, you had the Cultural Revolution in, um, in China. So a very definite sense of a, a sort of social and ethical turning point uh, with a new generation that people called the baby boomers coming forward and, and challenging traditional ways of, uh, of doing things. So all of this, I think, contributed to this sense that there was a new moment. And I really wanted to focus on it in the book, because um, I think the detente period has perhaps received a bit less attention than some other phases of the Cold War. It hasn't quite got the drama of, uh, you know, the Cuban crisis or the um, uh, the sort of the later build up in the, the Reagan period. But I thought it was very interesting for other reasons. And, and that's why I wanted to take a closer look at it. It is indeed a, a very fascinating period. And, and this book could have quite easily been a, a dry academic piece, but I think you really do bring it alive with the narrative style that that you've used. It was there a particular reasoning about that, aside from making it more accessible to a, a general reader? Well, thank you. I, I mean, I, I think it's you know for readers to judge whether whether my particular way of going at it is um, manages to convey the story. But I guess, um, I mean, a couple of things. You know, I think I was a bit informed by my my own sort of working experience. And, um, you know, you're very conscious that I think it's easy for historians to kind of look back at the sweep of uh, events in foreign policy and, you know, trace the kind of wider dynamics and causes and so on. But perhaps not always convey the way in which for the actual protagonists in the moment, they're kind of they're struggling to do 101 things under incredible pressure, events piling in one on top of another. And, uh, and so I wanted to sort of get that sense of, um, you know, the, the heat at the moment. And with it, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that um, human dynamics and personalities and so on are, um, are really crucial to, uh, to how events work out. You know, I think it's as important not just to talk about the substance, but kind of, you know, give, give a bit of a sense of kind of um, where they were meeting and even what they were having for dinner, you know, while the conversation was going on or whatever. So, so you get yourself exactly into, into that sort of um, sense of being present in the moment. Yeah, and I think it, it it it's that personal detail because I mean that that that's a lot of what we're about on this podcast is capturing those personal stories from that person's viewpoint at that time. And there's some very vivid images described in the book, in, indeed, right from the opening scene. And I'd like to just read a couple of sentences from from the opening scene. And the the book starts in Prague in August 1968 with the Soviet invasion, and the scene is in Alexander Dubček, the uh, Czechoslovak leader's office. And uh, I'll just read you a couple of lines from here. Comrade Dubček, you are to come with us straight away. It was nine o'clock on the morning of Wednesday, the 21st of August, 1968. The men spoke in urgent tones. A colonel led the group, short in stature, and dressed in Soviet uniform. Two others accompanied him with tweed jackets and open shirts. One spoke Czech. They stood in Alexander Dubček's office in the Central Committee building. Around them, young soldiers formed a circle behind Dubček and his colleagues, guns pointing at their heads. Outside, armoured vehicles had surrounded the building. All the phone lines were cut. 
So uh, for, hopefully for the listener, that, that gives you an indication as to you know how, how vivid the scenes are within this book. And it does work really well, Richard. I, I, I really did enjoy this. And I've, I've got another line that I'd like to use uh, later on, which, which I thought was really strong as well. Thank you. Um, and I mean, just, just to illustrate the point I was making about events kind of crowding in on each other. I mean, what, what, what interested me about that starting point in August 68 is you've got the you know, very shocking um, Soviet uh, invasion of Czechoslovakia to, to suppress the Prague Spring. But you've also got going on in the same week, the um, uh, Democratic Party convention in Chicago that breaks down over scenes of um, protest against the the Vietnam War, and in Moscow, um, you, you had the first meeting between uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn and Andrei Sakharov, um, the, who became the two sort of leading lights of the the dissident movement inside the um, uh, the Soviet Union. So, it, it, right from the start, I wanted to sort of get that sense of, of sort of things happening together, and and I think I really um, I was drawn to that moment in 68, because I think it also illustrates what I was saying a moment ago about a sort of sense of things running into a bit of an impasse. Uh, from Brezhnev's point of view, um, I mean, he, he had been reluctant to to go ahead with the invasion of Czechoslovakia. He tried to kind of talk Dudecek round, but it you know, it just hadn't been possible, and and he had to um, uh, ultimately had to to sort of uh, fall in line with with um, hardliners within the Politburo and and take that step. But having taken it, I think the Soviets were very conscious that um, uh, you know they potentially faced a backlash um, uh, inside the Eastern Bloc, um, and that their position was perhaps a bit more uh, a bit more vulnerable than it might have seen from a distance. And meanwhile, in in Washington, you know, the the first reaction this at the sort of tail end of the Johnson presidency was a feeling of of um, frustration, and and um, uh, they realised there was nothing they could do to um, uh, change the course of events in um, in Czechoslovakia. Yes, uh, start of the the book, you you outline eleven key moments of détente. I mean, the, the book the book picks it up in '68, as I say, with. Uh, the, the the invasion of Czechoslovakia and and I carried the story through to seventy five um, when you had the the American um, withdrawal from Vietnam and the um, uh, the Helsinki Accords and and so on. Um, although détente carries on in, in a sort of a, a rather muted form into the Carter presidency in in the later nineteen seventies. I mean that period between sixty eight and seventy five. Uh, I. I think you can trace a kind of an overall flow of events. Nixon comes into the presidency winning uh, quite a narrow election in the end in in, um, November 68. And he comes in uh, with a reputation as a, um, uh, from the Republican right, um, uh, tough on communism, but willing to to talk to the Soviets and and see if um, it's possible to make progress on uh, on the different areas. And and of course, Vietnam, top of the list, trying to find the right sort of dignified way for America to to exit and have peace with honor in Vietnam. Um, but also you had arms control talks, um, which, which had some um, initiatives that started under Johnson, but then that gets going in 69-70. You've got the status of Berlin as a divided city um, with the wartime allies as the occupying powers and, and the situation in the Middle East following the um, uh, the Six Day War in uh, in 1967. So you've got these various strands, but for the first couple of years, Nixon and, and his National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger really kind of struggle to get traction. And then the turning point comes in in 1971 when they, they begin to make some headway with Moscow. That they, they make a first um, statement on the scope for an arms control agreement, but also they get a break with China. America has been putting out feelers towards the Chinese for a few years, um, but then the message comes back that the Chinese are willing to accept Kissinger as an emissary to Beijing and to pave the way for Nixon to make a visit himself. And then that all happens in 72, so you get Nixon's visit to um, to Beijing, and then followed um, a few months later by a summit in Moscow with Brezhnev, first 
big summit meeting between the the two leaders um, and the agreements on uh, on salt strategic arms limitation talks um, and anti-ballistic missile defense and so on um, and then followed towards the end of that year um, it's a difficult process but in January 1973 agreement on a peace deal in Vietnam so at that point I think really detente is is sort of looking good and you know Nixon can point to significant achievements but then the um, uh, the period 73 74 75 you see the initiative flounder uh, some of that's down to Nixon's own situation with the Watergate scandal but also the Yom Kippur war in the Middle East and the subsequent oil crisis which sort of turns the tables. Um, suddenly, the Soviet Union gets a, a bonanza from higher oil prices, and the the Western economy is a very hard hit. And you have a um, mounting pressure from the dissidents inside the Soviet Union, which is picked up by uh, hawks uh, in in the US, uh, and then Ronald Reagan as a um, a presidential contender, um, who argue that um, that a policy of seeking accommodation with the Soviet Union is is mistaken, and that America should return back to a, a tougher line. So that's that's really the um, uh, the sort of the overall ebb and flow of the um, the detente period. Right. Well, let, let's just dig into uh, what, one of those, and we, we could start off with Kissinger's secret mission to uh, China. Can you just give us a bit more detail on that? Yes. So uh, so that takes place in in July 1971. Um, as I say, um, uh, Nixon and and Kissinger. Uh, get a, a secret message from the Chinese. It's passed through the Pakistanis, who are acting as a um, as an intermediary. Um, actually, um, curiously enough, I, I talk about events sort of piling in on each other. The message turns up in a in a beautifully sort of little handwritten note um, just after uh, Kissinger comes out of a a particularly tricky meeting with Anatoly Dobrynin, who is. The Soviet ambassador in Washington and his main counterpart for the sort of the secret channel between the two superpowers. So it's one of those moments where you know you step from one situation straight into another. Um, anyway, Nixon and Kissinger immediately see the the potential. Um, uh, they want to reach out to the Chinese. Of course, the backdrop is um, there's been the Sino-Soviet split through the 1960s. So China is already kind of splintering away from the um, the Soviet bloc, and the Americans want want, want to reach out to China with the potential to change what has been 25 years, basically, of, of a frozen relationship um, between communist China and, and America following the, um, the Chinese, uh, the communist takeover at the end of the, uh, of the 1940s. So Kissinger goes off on, on a secret trip to, um, to Beijing. He has to concoct a cover story, which involves travel through um, South Asia. He has to pretend that he's fallen ill with a tummy bug um, in Pakistan. Having just served there myself, I know that that's a, um, a frequent occupational hazard. Um, yeah, and I think what's quite ironic is he does actually get a tummy bug as well, doesn't he? Well, he, he does in, in India, yes. So, <laughs> so, um, so he has to suffer in silence and then, um, uh, then fly on to Beijing. Um, anyway, so goes to Beijing, a 48-hour trip, and with Zhou Enlai, um, the, the Chinese premier, um, he frashes out a, uh, an initial statement between the two sides, signalling the visit and dancing around the, um, the issue of Taiwan, because, of course, Taiwan is um, uh, under a, a nationalist um, government uh, who'd been on the opposite side in the, the civil war in China before the communist takeover. And uh, the, um, the United States still recognises Taiwan in terms of diplomatic relations. So there's a, uh, there's a delicate point there. But um, uh, essentially, it's, uh, it's a bit of a, a sort of boy's own adventure for Kissinger. Um, you know, he describes flying over the, um, uh, the Hindu Kush, looking down on, on K2, uh, the, the mountain, and, and you know, this, um, this incredible experience of um, uh, top secret diplomacy. Again, some, some great imagery there. Now, was part of this rapprochement with China in order to put more pressure on the Soviets? Was that part of the game as well? Well, um, so Nixon and Kissinger are very careful in their public statements to say that their action is not um, directed at any third party. Uh, and Nixon makes that clear in, um, 
in, in the televised statement he delivers when Kissinger comes back from this trip. But of course, in private, they recognize that absolutely um, this has given them leverage. Their whole, um, I should have said that their whole sort of diplomatic game plan is to draw linkages between these different um, issues, uh, you know, Germany and the Middle East and arms control and so on, and, and to, to use that to create trade-offs and linkages. And the prospect that America is drawing China um, into its orbit, of course, create high nervousness in Moscow. Um, we know that from, from various people's memoirs. Um, and when, um, when Kissinger next meets uh, Dobrynin, the, um, the, the Soviet ambassador in Washington, um, uh, it's, it's a different story. You know, Dobrynin is, is clearly um, keen to talk and, um, and, and you know, more forward-leaning on, on the various dossiers. So um, undoubtedly, they're, they're able to use this um, to, to create a bit of a turning point. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. The next area that that you cover is the Berlin Four Power Agreement. Now, I think some people might think that, you know, Berlin, its status was relatively set in stone at at Potsdam in in 1945. But obviously, there's the building of the the Berlin Wall in 1961. So why do they need a a further agreement in place? Well, of course, um, uh, there was no no formal um, peace treaty with Germany at the end of the war. Um, the the victorious allies um, tried to um, to agree on one and and they couldn't um, so they they ended up um, uh, partitioning Germany um, with the the occupation zones in east and west um, and that turned into um, uh, two separate Germanys uh, West Germany under um, uh, un, under the sort of uh, the orbit of um, uh, the United States and NATO and and East Germany with the the Soviet Union uh, and the Warsaw Pact. Um, it was possible to reach peace agreements on on Austria and other countries, but um, Germany was just too large and, and too problematic. And as you alluded to, within that, Berlin is the most complicated element because Berlin is inside East Germany, about 100 miles away from, um, from West Germany, um, but it is itself divided into four occupation zones uh, with the British, the French, the Americans and and the Soviets. And it's become a flashpoint through the 1950s and 60s. In 1961, um, the East Germans were obliged to construct the Berlin Wall to to prevent um, their citizens from seeking asylum in, um, uh, in West Berlin. And the concern continued into the 1970s that Berlin could become a, a further source of tension. Um, coupled with that, you have a very interesting context with um, uh, Willy Brandt, the, the West German Chancellor, um, who was also elected as a Social Democrat in 1968, around the same time as Nixon, and who embarks on his own form of detente with so-called Ostpolitik, uh, reaching out to the Soviet Union and other um, Eastern European countries, um, seeking to um, apologise for the, the Nazi past but also raising the prospect of um, recognition of West Germany and East Germany, but in return for recognition of um, borders around uh, post-war Europe. Um, But Brandt cannot make progress on the agreements that he initials with, um, uh, with Moscow and other Eastern European capitals until there is parallel agreement on Berlin. And that can only be made by the, the four um, controlling uh, occupying powers. So you get this very interesting sort of knot within a knot of, um, uh, of, of diplomatic issues. Um, and uh, Kissinger seizes on this and and is very careful with Kenneth Rush, who's the American ambassador in Germany and, and the point man in 
the negotiations over Berlin to pace those negotiations so um, they can work alongside linkages with arms control and Vietnam and, and elsewhere. I've noticed that you you use this this word linkages quite quite a lot, and I'm presuming this is common diplomatic parlance for uh, you know sort of trading off one thing against another and linking them together. Is is that 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 that's what you're describing there? Well, exactly, and and not just in diplomacy. I mean, I think you know um, any any form of negotiation with with sort of multiple issues um, uh, gets into into that kind of dynamic. But I, I think it is fair to say that it's a something of a hallmark of the the Nixon Kissinger approach. And um, you know, part of my interest in this uh, era was, um, I mean, this is you know diplomatic tradecraft at the highest level. Um, you might. You know, you might sort of um, argue there were moral questions about some of the things that they they got involved in, but um, uh, you you can't um, uh, underplay their their skill and cunning in pursuing it. Yeah, and I think it's indicated in that four power agreement because I was surprised to find out that Berlin, the word Berlin, doesn't appear in any of the text. It's only defined as the relevant area, or or something like that, which I th- sort of indicates the sort of dance that they had to do. They they had to get into all sorts of complicated ways, not to imply recognition in one direction or another, but to resolve all the practical issues about you know how you're going to have a a railway corridor and a sort of a motorway corridor to, um, to between West Berlin and West Germany and and the rest of it. Yeah. Now, Nixon's visit to China in February 1972 was pretty earth-shattering, I guess, because obviously there was, you know, the Korean War where effectively the the US, albeit under the aegis of the United Nations, was directly at war with Chinese forces. And this this must have been a huge surprise to people who weren't in the know at the time. Exactly. I mean, I think it, uh, you know, Nixon was able to do this because he came from the Republican right. So um, he he had a reputation as, as being tough on communism. Um, one of the famous moments of his, his vice presidency serving under Eisenhower was when he had the so-called kitchen debate with Khrushchev at a... Um, uh, at, at an exhibition in Moscow, and you know, argued that the the capitalist system was was superior to the uh, the communist one. So, um, I mean, remarkably, he is able to command a degree of support within the Republican Party and and even bipartisan in, in Washington, despite doing something which, as you say, was was quite controversial, and and which for the two decades before that, um, it had been very difficult for any American president to look. Um, uh, to look soft on uh, on communist China, the visit itself is uh, is as much about the image as the substance, and I think this is a important point to remember about this era that you know you have the um, uh, television has become uh, become widespread in American homes. Um, you get the beginnings of satellite broadcasting and so on. So you know carrying the news story becomes as important as the the substance behind closed doors. And um, Nixon and and his advance party, led by Alexander Haig, who at that time is deputy to Kissinger, map out a a day-by-day program with these different incredible photo opportunities, uh, landing at the airport and then going up to the Great Wall and watching a ballet and um, a banquet um, in the Great Hall of the People and and so on. Uh, But of course, behind behind the scenes, um, he has a meeting with Mao, who's pretty um, uh, pretty, um, old and doddery by this stage but still it's significant that the two men get to meet and extensive talks with with Zhao and Lei and um uh, and his team uh, although the americans at this point are still sticking to their position over taiwan of course by the end of the 1970s that changes and america goes for full diplomatic recognition of communist china but um uh for this first visit they they hold firm on uh, on that position right Right, and and then following that, uh, a few months later, there's a summit in Moscow. Is is that to sort of make sure that the Soviets still feel loved in some way? Well, it, it's a, um, I mean, it's always been the the objective um, of of détente to to be able to get to a meeting at the at the highest level. Brezhnev is is I think partly drawn to it as much for the sort of um, uh, the drama and the showmanship. Um, 
uh, as the substance. Nixon feels that um, uh, his position is secure. China visit's gone well. He's been able to face down a uh, an offensive by the North Vietnamese uh, in the run-up to the Moscow summit. Um, and he orders the aerial mining of, of um, uh, Hanoi Harbour um, to prevent um, shipments of, of Soviet arms supplies to the, the North Vietnamese. So he feels he can go to Moscow from a, a position of strength. And, um, and, and behind the scenes, um, the, the two sides have been working up agreements in, in lots of different areas on, on sort of cooperation, including actually there's, there's an agreement on cooperation in, in um, space exploration, which leads a few years later to the, um, the link up between uh, Apollo and, and Soyuz missions. But, uh, but, but um, crucially, um, they're able to sign agreements on, uh, on um, ABM, anti-ballistic missile defence, which limits both sides in how far they can deploy defensive um, uh, missile systems, um, and on strategic arms uh, limitation, which um, uh, sets limits on the um, long-range nuclear arsenal uh, that the, the two countries, um, two superpowers, uh, are able to possess. And of course, behind that, there then has to be a whole system of, of oversight and verification and so on, um, which means it's really the first um, significant step in, in a series of arms negotiations that they run on through the remainder of the, the Cold War. Right. So this is the SALT treaties, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. That's right. Yeah. Right. Right. And how does Nixon get on with Brezhnev? Do they sort of see eye to well not see eye to eye but is there is there any form of chemistry between them would you say well i i, I think um i think there is i uh, so i mean i, I said that um is a bit of a showman you know it's worth remembering with Brezhnev that our our image of him i think is is of um the man in his final years um uh, you know standing on top of Lenin's tomb in May Day parades and you know, very poor health by the end of his tenure. But at this time, um, Brezhnev is, is in reasonably good shape. And, um, you know, he's energetic and, and uh, passionate. He's very good at charming people. And, and Nixon sort of sees in him, I think, a, a kindred political spirit. Um, he talks in his memoirs about Brezhnev being like a sort of a trade union boss or a sort of big city mayor in, in the United States. So Nixon kind of immediately is able to recognize the, um, the type. And at their very first meeting in, in uh, Brezhnev's office in the Kremlin, um, Nixon uh, does the trick of um, shooing his own interpreter out of the room and, uh, and operating through the Soviet interpreter, um, Viktor Sukhodrov. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a sort of a basic um, uh, kind of confidence building um, measure. Uh, and then, um, you know, we, we see them again meeting in 1973 when um, Brezhnev comes over to Washington and they go on to California and stay at Nixon's um, uh, Casa Pacifica, his, his house on the, um, uh, on the West Coast. Um, and, and they have a final summit in 1974, although by that time, Détente is really running its course and, and Nixon's mired in um, Watergate. Yeah, yeah. I've seen a great, I think there's a great photo of the two of them on a bench somewhere chatting away. And it looks like they, they are getting on like a house on fire. Yes, I think that's, um, they go down to the Crimea. Um, right. Where where Brezhnev has his his, um, uh, his, his uh, seaside property, so um, that's in 1974 that they do the the Crimea trip. Yeah, yeah, somewhat unlikely pairing, but as as you say, they could see a a bit of each each other in 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 themselves. I want to highlight our friends at the Cold War channel on YouTube. I've been watching their quality videos for some time and I highly recommend them. The videos are presented in an easily digestible format and cover some fascinating and sometimes little known Cold War subjects. From the Kishtim disaster, the biggest nuclear disaster before Chernobyl, to the anti-Soviet guerrilla war in the Baltics, the episodes on Cold War TV provide a fantastic insight into areas of the Cold War not covered elsewhere. Just search for Cold War TV on YouTube. And now back to our episode. Um, in, in the course of this period, the Paris Peace Accords are signed, which allow the US to exit Vietnam. Um but it doesn't really go to plan, does it? Because the, the, the idea was that South Vietnam would still exist as a, as a state. 
Yes. So the, uh, I mean, the, the final years of the of the the Vietnam War are are a complicated period, and it's important to distinguish between what happens in um, late seventy two and early seventy three, which, as you say, leads to the Paris Peace Accords, um, and then the final collapse of of South Vietnam that comes in April nineteen seventy five. So uh, in um, in 1972-73, Kissinger's been pursuing secret negotiations with the the North Vietnamese for for some time. But the North Vietnamese think that they have the upper hand. Um, They think that the Americans are running out of patience in Vietnam and that domestic pressure through protests and so on means that they'll be forced into withdrawal. And really, the challenge for Nixon and Kissinger is to pursue what they call Vietnamization, which means substituting South Vietnamese troops for American troops in the actual war fighting. Um, but to keep up sufficient pressure on the North Vietnamese, um, including through uh, through the the, um, the air war, um, that the North Vietnamese are ultimately um, forced into a uh, into a peace deal. And by the autumn of 1972. Kissinger talks in Paris, believes that he's got there, um, and he comes back. This is on the um, shortly before the uh, the election in 19, November 1972. He comes back to to Washington, um, but then it becomes clear that the South Vietnamese cannot sign up to the deal that um, he's reached with the North Vietnamese, which would include a power sharing agreement for the the government in the South, and so the deal starts to unravel. And Kissinger's forced to give a press conference um, uh, in the White House where he tries to park the deal until after the election with the famous line, peace is at hand. Um, Then uh, fast forward to um, the December period of 72, North Vietnamese are refusing to deal even though Nixon's been re-elected with a landslide. And so Nixon and Kissinger sanction the so-called Christmas bombing of Hanoi, the devastating period of um, uh, aerial bombardment, widespread protest uh, inside the US and elsewhere. But it does force the North Vietnamese back to the um, the negotiating table. And the result is the, the peace accords in, in January 73, which provide for a ceasefire between North and South, as I say, a power sharing agreement, um, and the return, crucially, of, of prisoners of war, American prisoners of war who've been um, held in, in North Vietnam. But um, at that point, you might have thought that um, the, the agreement, particularly when backed up with um, the potential threat of, of US force, uh, might hold. Um, but over the next couple of years, it unravels. Um, obviously, Nixon's demise over Watergate is crucial. And Congress, where um, there's been a strong anti-Vietnam lobby for many years, imposes more and more legislative restrictions on how much military assistance the um, uh, the administration is able to give to the South Vietnamese. So it reaches a point where in early 75, um, the North Vietnamese realise, by this time Nixon's had to resign over Watergate, and they realise that they can um, they can go back in, um, uh, launch an offensive to, to capture Saigon. Um, the South Vietnamese um, uh, topple pretty quickly. And um, uh, Jerry Ford, who's taken over as president after Nixon, is forced to um, carry out the uh, rather ignominious um, uh, American um, evacuation operation, which um, uh, the famous images of uh, helicopters um, pulling out of Saigon and so on. Yeah, yeah. There's there's some great photos in in the book as well. I think one of the ones that I did find particularly fascinating was uh, Nixon talking with some peace protesters at the or anti-Vietnam War protesters at the Lincoln Memorial. That's right. So that was um, from 1970, uh, right in the period when Nixon is under the the heaviest um, domestic pressure. Uh, over um, over the Vietnam War, and and crucially, in the spring of 1970, he sanctions a incursion into Cambodia um, to take down um, uh, bases of the Viet Cong and, and North Vietnamese, which are just across the border from South Vietnam in, in Cambodia. But there's a very big backlash um, in American domestic. Um, opinion, uh, and particularly, as you say, from peace protesters, students, um, uh, Vietnam veterans, um, and protesters come flocking to Washington. There's an awful episode at Kent State University when um, the local National Guard opened fire on protesters and a number of students are, are killed. And in the kind of um, very intense days after that um, incident, 
Nixon makes this rather bizarre early morning trip out to the Lincoln Memorial. Um, he, he grabs his, ma- his valet, who's a, a Mexican-American, and, and his Secret Service bodyguards and um, uh, rushes off to the um, Lincoln Memorial and has this conversation as the sun's coming up first thing in the morning with, um, with a group of peace protesters. Yeah, yeah. So following those the peace accords there's a there's a further summit this time in Washington is is anything achieved at that one uh, so the Washington summit indeed um, comes in um uh, in June 1973 um date getting a bit thinner by this stage so i mean basically you have a sequence of three summits, Moscow 72, Washington 73, Moscow again 74. But on each occasion, there's a sort of more limited menu of, of actual agreements that um, uh, that the two sides can, can strike. Um, however, it is notable for, um, as you say, the, the chemistry between Brezhnev and, um, uh, and Nixon. And Nixon takes some um, uh, Brezhnev over to um uh, over to the west coast to his, his house at Casa Pacifica um uh he gives him a poolside party with um various uh hollywood um uh hollywood celebrities um kissinger turns up with the uh um the, the bond girl of the time uh, jill st clair um and and ronald reagan um turns up as well and then that evening um very late at night but um Brezhnev's got kind of confused with the time difference and uh, still wide awake. Um, they sit down in um, Nixon's study in, in his house, and Brezhnev um, warns um, uh, Nixon that trouble is brewing in the Middle East um, and suggests that the superpowers need to um, need to reach some sort of understanding between them. Nixon, joined by Kissinger, pushes back and and says, you know, we, we stand by Israel. We're, we're not going to talk about this. And Kissinger's furious that they've been ambushed um, uh, on an issue which wasn't on the agenda and late at night. But obviously, the Yom Kippur War follows only um, what four, four or five months later, um, and uh, and it turns out that um, indeed there is trouble brewing in the Middle East. I think the the Yom Kippur was quite an interesting one because outwardly it looks like it's a a three-way war between Egypt, Syria and Israel. But the Soviets are seriously considering armed intervention in in that as well. And the the Americans have to ratchet up their military presence in the area, don't they? Well, that's right. Um, I mean, it's perhaps perhaps worth just um, reminding ourselves of the the context of, of the Arab-Israeli um, uh, wars um, through the Cold War period. Um, so, of course, Israel created in, in 1948, um, and then a series of wars in, in 56, 67, and, and then indeed in uh, in 73. And um, in 56 and 67, the, the Israelis have, have really achieved remarkable military um, dominance over, over their Arab neighbours. Um, uh, and uh, and secured control over the Sinai Peninsula and the um, the Golan Heights uh, um, in Syria and so on. Um, uh, but then um, uh, in 1973, um, uh, Egypt and, and Syria strike back. They, they prepare um, a surprise offensive on on uh, a, a holy day in in. Um, uh, in Israel, um, Yom Kippur, and and have been um, preparing for secretly for many months, and the the objective, particularly of President Sadat in um, in Egypt, uh, is not perhaps so much um, to crush Israel, um, but to show that um, the Arab countries are able to to threaten Israel militarily. And, and so it proves um, uh, the Israeli armed forces are thrown back um, in, the, in the early days of the, of the conflict. Um, uh, and at one point, uh, it looks as though Israel is at risk of defeat. Um, but then the Americans stage a huge uh, airlift of military equipment, um, larger in scale uh, even than the, the Berlin airlift. Um, and, and the Israelis managed to turn the tide. Um, uh, situation um, at the time of a ceasefire is that you end up with an Israeli counteroffensive, which has gone back over the Suez Canal into um, uh, d- deep into Egypt. Um, so you have quite a volatile situation, including with um, Egyptian forces encircled on um, uh, on the east bank of, um, of the Suez Canal. The situation quickly turns into a confrontation between the superpowers. Um, Americans have been backing the Israelis, Soviets, of course, um, Egypt and and Syria. Um, and uh, and indeed, um, at one point, uh, when 
the Soviets uh, fear that the Israelis may be about to push things even further in Egypt, um, uh, they um, they start to put uh, paratroops um, on alert to be sent into the theatre. Um, all this is playing out alongside um, one of the crucial moments of the Watergate, um, the Watergate affair, uh, with the, um, uh, the so-called Saturday Night Massacre when uh, Nixon um, sacks his own Attorney General. Of course, so um, uh, Kissinger is is leading the um, uh, the discussions in in the National Security Council, um, and and a crucial stage he um, puts. American troops on DEFCON 3 alert, which, as your readers will know, um, was a very high level of readiness uh, for U.S. forces and uh, was used on on, uh, on only a few occasions through the Cold War. So for a few hours, you have a, a very serious, um, looming confrontation between the superpowers. Right, yeah, no, a very dangerous time during the Cold War and probably and one that's not necessarily recognised as a dangerous time you know things like the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Able Archer exercise in 1983 has been another point at which there could have been an accidental release of of nuclear weapons. But but that period of of the Yom Kippur, the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, is um, is less well known. worth worth exploring further, I think, in a future episode, but not today. So. Uh, Richard, at, at, in seventy four, um, Nixon resigns from office because of evidence found around his knowledge that the uh, Democrats' offices were bugged in the Watergate building. Yes, so uh, the Watergate affair, of course, is um, uh, extremely complex um, and, uh, and and you know evoked huge controversy at the uh, at the time. Um, obviously, the context, as you say, was a, a break in uh, by by operatives in in June um, seventy two into the the Democrat Party um, headquarters. Um, that was ahead of the um, the election that autumn. the The issue for Nixon is is really um, that he. He sanctions a cover-up, and then the cover-up becomes a cover-up of a cover-up, and, and so on. So um, he uh, he instructs um, Bob Haldeman and John Ehrlichman, his his two closest um, uh, aides, um, to talk to um, to Helms um, in charge of the CIA, uh, and um, and Vernon Walters, his deputy, and get the CIA to lean on the FBI to to back off on on the uh, the investigation in the immediate aftermath of the incident. Um, all of that is unknown for for many months, and the White House do a pretty effective job of of um, uh, keeping people quiet, paying people money, and the rest of it. So Watergate isn't really an issue in the seventy two election, which Nixon wins by a landslide against um, George McGovern, his, his Democratic opponent. But then, through early mid seventy three, um, more starts to come out. Um, people start to talk. Um, Congress gets interested. So you have the appointment of a special prosecutor to look into the case. Um, that's on the sort of the legal side. But also you have Congress beginning to explore scope for impeachment hearings. Um, and uh, through into 74, um, Nixon's support is really draining away. Um, a crucial moment comes, uh, as I was alluding to, in um, in uh, uh, October 73, um, at the same time as the Yom Kippur War, um, when he um, uh, he has to, to sack his own legal team uh, and, uh, and, and um, opinion polls start to move very sharply against him. So he's losing support in the country and that flows through to um, losing support in Congress. And really, um, the end game comes in, in July, August 74, by which time he's only down to a handful of senators prepared to back him. And, uh, and in fact, there is, there is no impeachment hearing in the end. Um, Nixon sees the writing on the wall and, uh, and resigns uh, without being formally impeached. And he remains the only US president to have resigned from office. Yes. Yeah, so he's vice president. Uh, Gerald Ford becomes president and he goes to the final summit of the detente period. Yes. So um, uh, Gerald Ford takes over having himself been appointed from from being minority leader um, to being vice president in in, um, 
uh, October 73, when um, Spiro Agnew, the previous vice president, has to resign over a different um, a different scandal. Ford offers a, a, a healing presidency, um, as he puts it. Um, uh, Watergate has been a huge national trauma, and uh, and Ford wants to um, wants to try and reunite the nation. But he's saddled with the question about what to do with Nixon, um, whether the, um, uh, the the legal proceedings against Nixon should be allowed to proceed or not, um, what to do about the um, uh, Nixon's papers, including the, uh, the, the infamous uh, White House tapes and so on. So he can't really shake off the, the shadow of Nixon. Um, but nonetheless, he, he presses ahead with um, contact with the Soviets and goes to um, Vladivostok at the end of 1974. Um, he was due to travel to, um, to Japan and South Korea anyway, but uh, it's not much further to go to Vladivostok, so they fix up a summit there. It's, it's not a very significant meeting. Um, there is a more discussion on interim uh, terms on further arms control to, to run through the 70s. Um, but, uh, but it's not a particularly um, substantive encounter. Um, they hold it in the rather strange setting of a Soviet air base in, in deep winter, um, surrounded by snow. Um, and, and of course, um, uh, it also marks the point at which Brezhnev's health begins to deteriorate significantly. So he, he suffers a, uh, a stroke um, uh, immediately after the summit. And, uh, and is dogged by, by ill health for the re- remainder of his time in office. Yeah, there's some great photos of, of both Brezhnev and Ford with uh, very large coats, which obviously they would have needed in deep winter at a, at a Soviet air base. And I think uh, Brezhnev takes a shine to uh, Ford's coat, doesn't he? Yes, that's right. So <laughs> so Ford has picked up a, um, uh, a, a wolfskin coat from um, Alaska, uh, where they've done a stopover during this um, uh, this trip. Uh, and, and he wears it for the summit. But you can see that Brezhnev uh, has taken um, taken rather a fancy to it. And, and so um, in the sort of, uh, you know, the bonhomie of the, um, the final parting handshakes, um, he, uh, he hands over his coat to uh, Brezhnev. Yeah. <laughs> great, great, great imagery there. And the, the, the sort of last point that you that you have around detente is is the Helsinki Accords in July 75. Yes so I mean again I think like much of this period um, Helsinki has has been a bit sort of overlooked in the uh, the wider sweep of the Cold War and um, and I think it's worth reminding ourselves of, um, uh, of what happened there. So um, this was a, a sort of offshoot of, of both detente and, and Ostpolitik that the um, the Soviets had been keen to see um, some kind of final settlement of, of post-war borders in Europe, um, where obviously you, because of the lack of a peace agreement around Germany, you still had provisional borders between Germany and Poland and, and in other places. And through um, 73, 74, and then into 75, this turns into a big multilateral negotiation between um, uh, the NATO countries and and the Warsaw Pact countries, um, and about uh, uh, various buckets of issues. So um, one of them indeed being um, post-war borders, uh, one being uh, conventional forces, which eventually turns into the um, uh, conventional forces in Europe um, uh, um, agreements, um, and and one about um, uh, other issues, including environmental and, and human rights. And um, and I think you know what what is important to remember about the Helsinki agreements, which are concluded with a signing ceremony um, uh, in the Finnish capital, which all the the leaders of these countries go to. So it's a it's a marathon of diplomatic speeches with um, everybody getting up in turn to um, uh, to congratulate themselves on um, on the achievement. Um, but it does provide for the beginnings of um, civil society groups um, on both sides of the Iron Curtain. And of course, for um, for the dissidents inside the Soviet Union, and also, um, uh, you know, the um, uh, people like um, Solidarity in Poland and um, uh, Charter Seventy Seven in Czechoslovakia, and so on. This is a very important signal that um, they are able to um, point to an international commitment that um, uh, the, the Eastern European 
states have made to to allow such um, such groups to um, uh, to exist. So um, the consequences, of course, are, are significant as you move into the the 1980s and um, uh, and the various ways in which um, uh, the communist system comes under internal pressure in um, Eastern Europe. Now you know the the book has, as as we we sort of said at the start, has some great uh pictures painted in the in 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 the text and i think you know one one of the other ones that i really liked was um one with kissinger who who looms as a huge character across the across the the book and obviously should should do because of his his role during this period but the, there's a line at the end of one of the chapters where um and this is i think is from the uh, neil ferguson uh biography of of kissinger but the the line is Kissinger looked at his conversation partner. His speech had become more halting, gentle. Brezhnev was an old man in search of peace. I mean, I think it's it's worth remembering that both Brezhnev and Nixon are complex, multi-layered characters. So, um, uh, you know, you see different sides of them at different moments and, and in different circumstances. Um, the, the episode that you're, um, you're alluding to was when uh, Kissinger goes over to um, uh, to Moscow uh, in the run up to the the seventy three summit, and um, and he's taken on a hunting trip by uh, by Brezhnev. Um, they're they're shooting wild boar. Um, the uh, uh, the wild boar are enticed to come within a sort of um, only a few feet of the um, you know the the hunters hide so that Brezhnev's um, able to get a, 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 a clear shot and uh, Kissinger, uh, Kissinger doesn't really enjoy it it's not his thing but he, he sort of plays along um, and uh, and they fall into this conversation and um, Brezhnev reminisces about his his wartime experience and so on and and I think you know it's it's so important to remember um, that the war for the Soviets, but also actually for the Americans um, uh, at the time at Dayton, is still a very real and vivid experience. So Brezhnev had, had been a, um, a senior political commander at the front. Um, you know, he'd seen the uh, the liberation of um, uh, Ukraine after Nazi occupation, and then the advance through into into Europe. Um, Nixon had served in the the U.S. Navy um, at an outpost in the in the Pacific. And of course, Kissinger, um, remarkably, um, grew up inside Nazi Germany, um, uh, with a Jewish family, um, who managed to get out, um, before, um, before the, the persecution of, of the Jews, uh, really took hold, um, and, and fled as refugees to, um, uh, to the United States. And then subsequently during the war, joined the American army and went back to Germany. Um, serving in the the occupation force um, straight after the war, and and you know many of the other protagonists in the book also had had formative war experiences. So I, I think it's important to remember that that you know when they talk about war and talk about wanting to avoid nuclear confrontation and so on, it has a very a very real and a very personal meaning. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's a that's a very a very good point to make, and and one that's not necessarily always remembered when when you were writing the book did you did you speak to any of these people firsthand i i didn't no i um uh, i mean it, it's a great period to uh, to cover because there really is a wealth of material um uh, from the you know different documents published and um uh, obviously incredible um material with the the White House tapes and so on, and, and I, I used a lot of the oral histories which were recorded in the the nineties and two thousands. Um, but the um, uh, relatively few people are still around, and they are quite advanced in age now. But of course, Kissinger. Yeah, I was amazed to see that he 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 was still alive, and obviously Carter is uh, is still around as well. You've been listening to Richard Crowder, the author of Détente, The Chance to End the Cold War. Now, lucky listeners, we're doing another Cold War Conversations book giveaway, so make sure you listen through to the end of this episode and there will be details as to how to enter that giveaway in the show notes. Ian, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. 
and we have further information such as videos and links in our show notes which will show as a link in your podcast app now you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons however i want to especially thank our politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 us dollars a month to keep us on the air these are Tony Sowoods, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Frederick Esposito, Jeffrey Jones and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.